uh, what a blessing to be here with you and to be able to share the word with you. Um, like I said, we have three children. Our, our son is uh, married, and so bad news for all of you grandparents. We now have the cutest grandson, and so second is fine. Don't be bothered with it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, but we are, we are so blessed. Our, our kids are walking with the Lord. Actually, my son is teaching for me right now. Um, they're having Youth Sunday, so the kids are doing the youth and the ushers and the greeting and doing all that kind of fun stuff. I hate to, to miss that, but uh, uh, we're, we're just excited what the Lord is doing um, down in Lynchburg and glad to be here with you today. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get right into Revelation 3. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and you're very clear, Lord. Uh, your word is not written in a confusing way. The truth is plain. The truth is simple. And we know that your son is that truth. And so we ask today that as we study your word, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be exhorted. Lord, if there needs to be change, then Lord, we want that change to come from you. Lord, you are so good to us. And when you change, Lord, you do exactly what is needed. So Lord, we pray that you give us an ear to hear what your spirit is saying to the church here in Fluvanna. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to look at one of the letters to the seven churches that are addressed in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus delivered seven different messages to seven different churches that are were scattered throughout Asia Minor, minor uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, they were on a, a Roman postal route. It was a kind of a convenient way to get the letters out that way. And um, they were given to John while on the island of Patmos. He delivers it to them. These messages come to these churches. There's a very distinct way in which the Lord addresses all of the churches. He first begins by revealing himself. He will share some aspect of his nature or his character or his works. We'll see that in just a moment. He then will go on to commend them for something. If need be, and in five out of the seven times, there was need for correction. And so he will commend them. He will correct them. And then he will put promises in front of them. He will tell them what he is going to do and what is awaiting us as believers. And that's the way each of the letters go. The Church of Philadelphia is a, a church that I, I just call this the Church of, of Opportunity. God was going to give them an incredible opportunity and he wanted them to walk through that open door that he was going to show them. We begin there at verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So depending on how you want to break that down, there are four different ways in which Jesus introduces himself. And, and Jesus introduces himself first off by saying what? That he is, he is holy. He is a holy one. And, and this, to, to take the title of holy was not just a, 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 not anybody did that. This was a title that in the Old Testament was ascribed to the Lord uh, God himself. So you can read in Psalm 71, verse 22. It says, also with the lute, I will praise you and your faithfulness. O my God, to you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. To say that, for Jesus to say that he is holy is to make a claim to deity. You may remember in Matthew 19, 17, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And so clearly, for him to call himself 
not just simply good. He goes above that. He says, I am holy. He is identifying himself as the divine one. That probably was a significant way to introduce himself to the church at Philadelphia. Like many of the churches in this region, there were many temples dedicated to other gods. For instance, just a handful of them, but there were many more than this. In the city of Philadelphia, they worshipped Artemis. There was a temple that was dedicated to Artemis. There was a temple that was dedicated to Zeus, Dionysus, Aphrodite, and then others. And so in this town where there was so much worship, so much religion going on, and people saying, well, I, I identify with this God. I identify with that goddess. The Lord says, let me tell you something. I'm the Holy One. I'm the one that's different than all the other so-called gods. It was a clear way of distinguishing himself from the rest of the field. as a claim to deity. But then he goes on to say that he is true. And, of course, all these other religions were claiming to have truth. But, but he says, I am true. Now, that's not the first time Jesus spoke about being true, is he? He also speaks about this in the Gospels. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the truth. It's a very, very narrow approach to, Jesus, to, to the Father, and you must come through Jesus Christ. It's that, it's, it, people say, you Christians, you're so narrow. Well, that is true. We are narrow. We believe that there is only one way, but the reality is everybody lives their life according to some truth. Everybody does that. And, and they, they will operate and they will function. They will make decisions. They will make plans. They'll make commitments based upon certain truths. Jesus said He is the truth. He said He is the only way. We all deal with truth and there's very narrow ways in which to do, with it, do that. You, you think about that in terms of technology. You can't just do it any way you want. You, there's certain ways in which processes have to function and when they don't function that way, it's the computer's fault, right? Of course. I mean, no, it, there's something we've got to fix it. We've got to get what's the truth that's going to allow me to, to use this tool. So we use truth, and we use it in a very narrow sense in many different ways in life. When you go to a doctor, you want him to function, and you want him to, to practice according to you know, good principles and truth of, of medicine, right? You don't want him to just do whatever you want him to function according to truth. And, and yet when it comes to this thing that is the most important, our eternal soul, somehow this philosophy that has been infused into society says we shouldn't worry about truth. Well, the Lord says otherwise. He says, I am the way and the truth. John 5.20, you might want to write it down. John 5.20 says, And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. It's not always leading to God. There's one way that leads to the Lord, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ, who loved you and died on the cross for you and is even today still speaking and reaching out to you, drawing you unto Himself. He cares for you and He loves you. The one who is true is the greatest lover of your soul that you will ever meet. Nobody will show greater love for you than the love that Jesus has shown. And so he loves and he cares, and this is the truth that we must know. So he identifies himself as the Holy One. 
as the true one. Again, I would say significant ways to reveal yourself in a town where there were so many other gods that were being worshipped. Now, those are kind of easy for us to wrap our mind around. We don't have to think too hard on that. But the, the next two items, they're a little bit different. He says that he is the one that has the key of David. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know what the best commentary on your Bible is, right? Your Bible. The best commentary on, your Bi- on the Bible is the Bible. And so what we would do is we would look for other places in Scripture where it talks about the key of David, which would take us to Isaiah chapter 22. You might want to turn over there. I'm not going to go through this whole section. I'm going to pick up at verse 22 um, and read down to uh, verse 25. But the, the story really begins back in 15, verse 15. And um, just for the sake of time, I will summarize that. But let's first read at verse 22. It says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Verse 24, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity and from cups to all the pitchers. In other words, the wealth. In that day, he says, says he, the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord of hosts has spoken. All right, so let's consider this for a moment. In the opening verses of this chapter, verses 15 through 21, we're introduced to two different people. Uh, The first one is a man by the name of Shebna. He's, He's not a good guy. He's a bad guy. He's a guy that has the key to the house of David. He has access to all the finances, just If you want to think about it, just think Judas, okay? He's that kind of a guy. He takes care of himself. He builds himself a nice tomb. He has all the nice clothes. He has all of this stuff. And, of course, back then, building a a really nice tomb was a way in which you could be remembered for, for ages to come. And so he has all of this stuff, and the Lord removes him. But he raises up somebody else by the name of Eliakim. And that's the one that's referred to as he and him and verses 22 through 25 that I just read. Interesting though, Shebna means vigor. Whereas Eliakim means the one whom God raises up. And the one that he was going to raise up, Eliakim, is likened as one that would be like a peg on the wall. And they could hang the hopes of Israel. A good, godly leader will be uh, able to be looked to finally in the land. And this is a blessing to any, any group of people that have a godly leader that have a reliable leader, that's one of of, of solid character. And they, Israel, were going to look to him. But it says here that there'll come a day when that peg, Eliakim, that was fastened in the wall, that Israel finally had this great leader that is going to be removed. And the burden that was on him is going to be cut off. And that's the way it is with every great leader, right? I mean, people only live for so long. They They don't live forever. I, I, you know, I think about Pastor Chuck. I mean, Pastor Chuck was a, a one whom God had raised up. He was a peg on the wall, and he was a great voice and a great leader and a great pastor uh, to, to many of us. But his days were finished, and we can no longer hang 
uh, you know, our, our hopes and, and, and uh, dreams upon him to give us leadership. He's not going to do that. God will raise somebody else up. But there is one whom God has raised up, another Eliakim that holds the key of David, and his name is Jesus. And guess what? He will never come out of the wall. He will never let you down. You can trust on him today, tomorrow, and for eternity. And he's going to be there for you. And so we get this story in, in Revelation where the Lord says, I have the keys of David. Well, you do a little bit of cross-referencing, you find out there's a lot to learn about the keys of David. It was a way to speak of you know, having some authority, having, having some sovereignty. If you have keys, you have authority, right? So, and, and the more keys you get, the more keys you realize you don't want to have, right? It's one of those things, you know, early on, you can want to know a lot of things, want to know how to do a lot of things, you want to know how things work. I, I don't really care for that anymore. I have so much that I, that's on my plate. When somebody says, I can show you how to do it, I'm like, I don't want to know. Uh, I don't want that knowledge. With knowledge comes responsibility. Just, just can you just do it for me? And so, you know, you get the keys. You have responsibility. You have authority. You're sovereign. There's some sovereignty. Now, with Jesus, he, he is the completely sovereign one. And so as we read here that he is, he is the holy one, he is true in this city where there's other gods. He's the true. But now he says, I have the key of David. I'm sovereign. And he says, he goes on to say that he is going to open and shut doors. This is what we're reading there in uh, Revelation chapter 3. And verse, at the end of verse 7, he opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. A clear reference again back to Isaiah 22, right? So the Lord is going to open and shut doors. He's omnipotent. He has the power to open a door and to close a door. And then nobody can shut a door that he has opened and nobody can uh, reverse that. However, I don't know. I maybe got that confused. But you understand what I'm saying. He can open and somebody wants to, to shut it. Not going to happen. He shuts it. Somebody wants to open. No, he's omnipotent. He is in complete control of all of these matters. So this is how he introduces himself. I think it's really significant to what we go on to see he's not going to correct them for anything he's only going to commend them and let me just pause, just put this thought on pause for a second in this book it's obviously a book about end times right and to some of these churches the lord will deliver a message that will they had their time in history this church is long gone they don't exist anymore the people that read this message and heard this message they died centuries ago but yet there's something in the way in which this letter is written that that applies to all of us and we'll see it later but what he says to them he speaks to a generation that is going to watch the great tribulation come upon the world and he says and i'm going to keep you from that you're not going to go through that that tribulation we'll get to that in just a moment but my point that i want to make is this church of philadelphia is a last days church sure it was a church that was in existence when it was delivered to them. But it's also a message that goes far beyond them because Jesus talks about those that are going to see a tribulation, be delivered from a tribulation that's coming upon the whole world. Again, I think that is significant because it's a message, I would say, that, that applies to us. Uh, the church of Laodicea is another church that has kind of an end times uh, exhortation given to it 
And yet they're the very church you don't want to be at the last days, right? The lukewarm church. You want to be the church of Philadelphia in the last days. And what Jesus says to them, look with me at verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. That's quite a commendation. Those are some great things to hear Jesus say good job to. Uh, for. But he says, I know your works. Now, if you take the time to look at each of the addresses, and it comes at the beginning of each of these seven churches, seven times to seven churches, Jesus says, I know your works. Seven times he says that. Jesus knows what we're up to. Jesus knows what we're doing with those gifts and those talents that he has given to us in the body of Christ. He knows what every church is up to collectively in their community. And in this world, he knows what you're putting your hands to. He knows what Calvary Chapel Lynchburg is doing. Now that either provides comfort or maybe it provides some exhortation today. See, the great thing is, you may be thinking, maybe you even came in today and you thought, nobody ever notices what I do around here. Guess what? Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I see it. Don't worry about it if anybody else sees it. And, and if that's the case, it, it probably is just an oversight. But don't worry about it because the one who's going to honor you with a reward when you get to heaven sees what you're doing. You be faithful and don't let anything slow you down. But I know your works. Now, if you're not engaged, if you've taken your hands off the plow and you're no longer serving in a way that you once felt compelled to serve and you even exhorted other people to serve, I realize we go through transitions and seasons, but is it maybe time for you to get your hands back on that plow and start serving the Lord again? Jesus knows your works. When we stand before him, he's going to evaluate those. So seven times he makes that statement. He also speaks to them about the open doors that he was going to give to them. He says, see, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Again, tying in directly with how he's revealed himself in the opening uh, in that previous verse as the one who has the keys of David. He is opening a door for them. Now, when we hear this, and I I can show you this, it's easily seen, but when we read about open doors in the New Testament, it is a reference generally to the opportunity to go and share the gospel and to present the message to engage in missions. That's generally the way it's referred to. Um, You can see that in Ephesians. Uh, we're going through 1 Corinthians, and I have one more Bible study in 1 Corinthians when I get back next week. Or 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9 says, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Is that how you think of a, an open door? If you have adversaries, then you know it's an open door? Or do we maybe flip it? Oh, if there's opposition, and if there's adversaries, if somebody's resisting, me sharing the gospel, then that evidently may be a closed door. I think that's a wrong way to look at it. And that's not what we find in Scripture. Closed doors, don't measure them, an open door, by whether or not there's opposition or not. Think of Jesus' life. His whole life was met with opposition, and yet that was the open door. That was the mission field that the Father sent him into was this earth, and there was opposition all around. But he's going to open a door for them 
to walk through. I recently heard this story shared at our, our church probably about three weeks ago now. It's a true story. And it speaks of, of an open door. There was a church, uh, and I believe that it was in Afghanistan. He was kind of discreet, but, but it sounded like Afghanistan. And this, this small group of believers were praying and seeking the Lord. And they felt like the Lord said, you need to send somebody up to that town, up to that village. There's no church there. There's no gospel witness there. And so as they prayed and sought, they laid their hands upon one man whom this one telling the story said it was their best and brightest. And he went up to that town, began to do ministry, and he was martyred. He was put to death, brutally martyred and put down. The news traveled back down to the church, and they began to pray. They began to seek the Lord. And as they were seeking the Lord, somebody in that group said, you know what? While we were praying, the Lord told me, I'm supposed to go back up there. That doesn't sound like an open door, does it? Right, they just killed the last person that went up there. Yeah, that's an open door. That's how Paul measured it. And so this, this, this young man journeys back up, goes into this town. Some time elapses. They come. They throw a sack over his head. They throw him in a car. They take him to a, a place he has no idea where he's going. He gets into a room, and he says all he can hear is people breathing. Because the sack is over. I mean, kind of scary, isn't it? Especially knowing what had just happened. And as the story is told, he was like, I just knew. I was about to go join my brother in the presence of Jesus. He's all right. I guess this is it. But when they took the, the sack off of his head, he said there was 100 people in that room, 100 men. And they said, your friend came up here, and he was sharing the gospel, and we killed him. And ever since we have killed him, We've had a reoccurring dream, all of us, individually, in our own homes, on our own pillows. I've had a dream that our hands are covered in blood. And we try to wash our hands in the dream with water, and it won't come off. And then we start scrubbing it with sand. And then we get rocks, and we begin to scrub our hands, and we can't get the blood off of our hands. And then it's at that time that an angel appears in our dream and says, a man will come who will tell you how to remove the blood off of your hands. They said, we have one question for you. Are you the man whom this angel has sent to tell us how to get the blood off of our hands? And he says, yes, I am. And he preached the gospel, and all 100 of those men gave their life to Jesus Christ. Does it sound like an open door when you have the news that the last person you just sent was put to death? And then in that prayer meeting, somebody says, I think I'm supposed to go back. Now, we, we may, our first human response may be, oh, that's, that's a closed door. But you, look how God worked. He used the blood of that faithful servant, that first one, to be a means by which this second one could come in and actually proclaim liberty to them. We must be careful that as we evaluate open doors, we don't just think of whether or not it's going to be easy and whether there's going to be applause and whether it's going to go, um, you know, beautifully. It may end up in death, but that does not mean that even that was a closed door. So Paul says, hey, there's an effective door that's been opened to me. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, I think it is. And I have many adversaries. That's how we measured it. 
You know, we have lived, we have had an interesting history in our country, really, haven't we? For the years that we've been in existence, for the most part, and I know there are exceptions, but for the most part, nationally, we have never had to deal with the type of persecution I just described to you. Things happen, I get it. But, but for the most part, there's been a culture. There, even if people aren't saved, there's been, there's been kind of a, an acceptance of Christianity. And I'm talking about genuine Christianity. But even those who maybe are not genuine Christians, they've tolerated it. It's been okay. The days are changing in this country. Now, I'm praying for a revival. That's what I want to see happen. And I think that's the only thing that's going to change what's going on in our country. But the, the days of people respecting pastors, respecting the church, looking up to Christians, those days are getting fewer and fewer. Fewer and fewer people look at the church in a positive light. It's beginning to be something that, what do you believe? And it's beginning to be challenged. And this idea that we can maybe hide, and maybe not even a a motivation to hide, but just this idea that I don't have to be really bold, I don't have to be really vocal. I think the days are coming. If we continue on the same, you know, downward spiral, same trajectory that we are on right now in this country, I think the days are coming where you're not going to have to worry about standing up and saying, I'm a Christian to let everybody know. I think they're going to start asking. What happens when it gets dark and you see light? It's really bright, isn't it? Have you ever flown over the country, over America, at nighttime, up that 37,000 feet? And a lot of it is just, you know, you don't see any light. But then you can see what would seem like one little light. One little street light. It just stands out in all this darkness. And I believe this is what is going to be happening. Okay? I think it's going to get to those days where the world is going to get so dark. And those that are of true, genuine faith, you're just going to stand out. And there's going to be your open door. So yes, I am a believer. I am, yes, I do believe the Word of God. Yes, I do believe that Jesus is the Holy One. I do believe that He is the truth. And you'll have that opportunity to share. Don't allow fear to keep you from walking through the door. So what constitutes an open door? The leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what constitutes a, a, an open door. If the, Lord, if the Spirit of God says you need to share with your boss, is that the enemy or is that the Lord? Last time I checked, Satan really doesn't want you to share the gospel with anybody. So it's probably not Satan, right? It's the Lord that's putting it on your heart. Should I share the gospel? I think I should share with my neighbor. Then share with your neighbor. It's when the Spirit of God prompts you that you must go forward and you must share and let people know that Jesus is the truth. I I am a firm believer that every church should be a mission-minded church. You know, that you, you'll hear, we have this distinction. Oh, that's a church that's really mission-minded. Is there any other kind of church? Jesus has commissioned His church to go into the world and to spread the gospel, to walk through the open doors. I'm not familiar enough with your ministry to know what all the open doors are. I know that you have many outreaches into your community. But what are the open doors that God has put before you? But my question that I want to put before you is, What are the open doors that God is going to put before you? And are you going to walk through them as a a congregation? Are you going to follow the leadership? And are you going to step forward and are you going to go for it? We need to be out there. We need to be preaching the gospel to everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
And I love what God is doing over in the Middle East and the way he is saving the, uh, the uh, Muslim people. You know, it's interesting. Where Christianity has the least amount of influence, uh, Iran is the place where you have more people coming to faith than any other place in the world right now. Did you know that? That's the fastest-growing part of the church in the world. And yet there's such little witness there. And yet those that are there praise God for them. But God is, is redeeming them with visions and dreams. And, and, you know, it's like, are these true? I, every year I go over to Israel and I spend some time um, on, in the West Bank with some of these pastors that are, that are ministering and serving there. Very small minority of Christians there in the West Bank, as you can imagine. And I, I've asked them. Every time I go, I said, I keep hearing that there are more and more people coming to faith, Muslims, through dreams and visions. Is it true? They can, they can barely stay off of each other to tell stories of how people are coming to faith. He says, it is amazing what God is doing. This is the testimony that this coming from the field. God is work, working. And we need to be willing to go. We need to be willing to support these ministries or wherever God is leading. So last days. The church of Philadelphia is a last days church. You're either going to be Laodicea or you're going to be Philadelphia. What's your choice? And we need to be the Philadelphia. And I know that you are. I know that you are. But I want you to notice in this verse 8, why is it, why is it that the, the Lord chooses to use this church? He says, I know your works. See, I've set an open door. Uh, no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. I've kept my word and not denied my name. Why did the open door come? Three things. But I love the first one. Because you have a little strength. And that doesn't seem right, does it? I've put before you a great and effective door because you're a church that's full of resources and talents and you have all that you need. And therefore, I've given you an open door because you can do so much. That's not the way the Lord's economy works. He says, I have seen you and I choose to put this door before you because you're weak. And isn't that the very reason why we often dismiss ourselves from ministry? Isn't that the very reason why we say, no, 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 not me. We hear the opportunity to serve, to reach out in the community, to get involved in some kind of mission work. And we're like, no, no, not me because I'm too weak. I'm not talented enough. I don't have enough skills. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have this. I don't have that. And yet the whole time you're making your case, the Lord's like, we really got to get them. Because they have, I mean, they have even less than little strength. The more you argue that you are not worthy, the more the Lord sees you rising on his list of one he wants to use. God wants to find those with little strength. God, God does not need our strength or power. And again, the testimony that I just gave you of what's going over in Iran is, is evidence of this. Where the church may be the weakest, and that might be an overstatement, but I'm just going to say where the church is the weakest, the church is growing the fastest. What does that say? That says God doesn't need our help. But we do get to get involved. And we do get to be a part of what he's doing. And he gets the glory for it when that takes place. That's why he chooses the foolish things and the weak things and the base things to confound this world. I love this story in the Old Testament. It's probably my favorite story. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Israel is gathered to, to go out and to fight, but nobody is fighting. 
And there's a, a prayer meeting, and you'll have to read it and figure it out for yourself, but you just, this is my take on it. There's a prayer meeting that's going on that's a hypocritical prayer meeting. And by that I mean they're saying, Lord, should we go and fight? But they have no intention of going and fighting. They're praying just to get out of the work. And, and so finally one man says, I can't stand this anymore. And it's the king's son. His name is Jonathan. And then Jonathan uh, comes to his armor bearer. It's 1 Samuel 14, verses 6 and 7. Then Jonathan said to the young man, young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said, Are you nuts? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Did you hear how Jonathan described the opportunity of going, him and his armor bearer alone, and attacking a garrison of the Philistines? What does he say? He says, I know for a fact. I had a dream. I had a vision. I have this, I have it in writing from God that when we go and attack, he's going to give us a victory. Is that what it says? Now look, look at that. If you're, if you're there, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it again. It's in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. He says, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be. Time out. You want to go attack these Philistines and all you've got is a maybe? That's all I've got. All I've got is a maybe, but I know who our God is. He doesn't need a lot of people. He can do it with few or he can do it with many. And and so when we look at opportunities, we must not look at them based upon what we have, what our resources are, what our skills are. We must look to the one who has the key of David, and that is Jesus. And Jesus has all the resources of heaven and earth. There isn't nothing that he lacks. He has everything. There's nothing that is made that was not made by him and held together by him. If he says go, then what is there to be afraid of? The only thing to be afraid of at that point is what? Staying. That's the only thing that must concern you. Listen, he says it may be, and I, th- I like this. I think that's a good description of what faith is. Faith is a strong maybe. We like to think of faith. We, we know faith, you know, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. But the way we like to deal with faith is more like a fact. As soon as that faith becomes a fact, as soon as we get enough information to make this this decision a fact, then I'll do it. Until then, I'm not going to step out. Well, that's not faith. It's not faith any longer. It's a fact. And so God will lead us and He will guide us into so many different ventures. And it's it's a you come to a place where you're like, we've sought the Lord, we know the Word, this is for His glory, and we think this is what He wants us to do. So it's a strong maybe, who's with me? And this is what leadership says to the church. This is what the pastor says to the church. Hey, we feel the Lord has led us in this direction. And then it's up to the church, the armor bearers, to say, go for it. Do all that is in your heart. Let's let's find out. And you know, you will take steps as a church, and some of them, they're going to be right on. And you're going to see the Lord give great deliverance. Some of the steps, though, you're going to take, you're like, that was a really bad idea. I don't want to do that again. Let's stop. Let's retreat. Let's redirect the resources. And I'm all right with that. And I think the Lord is all right with that. I think what he's not all right with is 
when nobody wants to move and nobody wants to step out. And I'm not even saying this to try and say you're not. I'm just, I want to encourage you. What are the other things that God has for you, for your family? What are the things the Lord has for this church? I know this is a church that loves the Word, that, that, that loves this community, that wants to reach out, that you're, you have a heart for missions. And the Lord has blessed you and He's given you these opportunities. But I'm praying for bigger days for you. I'm not necessarily praying for more strength, though. I'm just praying for more opportunities to come, more doors to swing wide open. Doors that when they swing wide open, they'll take your breath away because of what you've got to risk to step out. Like Jonathan and his armor bearer. And you know, I, I love to live my Christian life like this and in ministry. And we've done this over the years. As a matter of fact, um, on the way up, my wife Rebecca said, she says, I just want to, I just want a big step. And she didn't know what I was going to teach on because I actually planned on teaching the church of Ephesus. But as uh, just all morning, as I just kept thinking, I was like, no, you know, I think I, the church of Philadelphia. But she's like, I just want to take a step of faith. I just, what is the next thing? And we have been a, a family, been a marriage, been glad to take steps of faith. We moved out here 21 years ago. And when we were coming out here, I had, I had three months. I was on staff at a church. They gave me three months worth of uh, you know, salary, and said, when it's all gone, don't call back home for more. <laughs> you know, that's all you're getting. And so as I began to look to come here out to Lynchburg, Virginia, um, I had the newspaper delivered to my house in Oceanside, California. There wasn't internet back then. So, you know, I had to, I had to do this. I had to have the, the newspaper delivered to find out the jobs, to find out the homes that were coming available. And so they would come. They usually all came like in one day. The whole week's worth of newspapers all came in one day. And so I, I would lay them out, begin to look, and it was such a discouraging process to go through. Yeah, I'm 27. Oh, at that time, I'm not 27 now. I'm a little older than that. But, uh, you know, at the time I was 27 years old and I had done nothing but ministry. I worked at a, uh, a boot store when I was in high school. I, I rented cars at the John Wayne Airport. And um, I worked at Chuck E. Cheese. I'm not thinking that any three of these are going to be great, you know, provision type of skills when I get to Lynchburg, Virginia. So I began to go through the newspaper. And as I looked at the newspaper, I quickly came to the conclusion, there's no way I'm going to be able to make it. I was looking at, again, no skills, but I was looking at like entry-level construction. I'm 27 you know what, I can, you know, I'll figure it out. Somebody can, I, I'm, I, I'm young, I've got that going for me. Somebody will give me a chance, I'll work hard for a while, and then maybe something like that. But I looked at what those, those entry-level positions, and I would even be below that, because I didn't have any of those skills. But that's all I could think of. And I, when I looked at what they were making, I, I, I was just, I would nearly be brought to tears, because the reality was, I was making more as a junior in high school, selling boots at a mall than most of the jobs were being offered in the newspaper. I was living in Southern California. I'm like, Lord, how in the world am I going to take care of my wife and my two kids? And then one day the Lord said, I'm going to provide for you. You're not going to have to work. I thought, that's just crazy talk right there. You know, what kind of person goes and plants a church and thinks that they're not going to have to work? That's just, you know, terrible people do that. Not, not good pastors. And she came in. I was sitting there at the dining room table. And she goes, so what's going on? I says, well... 
you know what, I think the Lord has shown me something, but you're going to think I'm crazy. She goes, I already know what you're going to say. I said, well, tell me. She goes, no, you tell me. I said, no, you tell me. And we went back and forth, you know, with that whole thing. Eventually I said, I think the Lord's saying I'm not going to have to work. She goes, yeah, I know. The Lord's already told me. You're not going to have to work. And you know what? I didn't have to work. Now, how does that, I, I, I still don't really know how all that worked out. I mean, I probably can give you all the ways in which God did, but it didn't make sense. There's all kinds of reasons for why we don't want to step out. Mine was fear. I was afraid of not being able to provide for my family. I was afraid of falling flat on my face. The church, a large church out in California, sending the young man out with his family to go start a Calvary Chapel and only three in, in all of the state of Virginia. Now I'm going to do this, and if I fall flat on my face, and how embarrassing this is going to be. And there's a fear of failure. There's a fear of finances. All these things that were gripping me in. Of course, the Lord gave me the faith to go forward. But what keeps you from stepping out? Those are the things that I had to deal with. What's keeping you from stepping out? You know, for, for some, it's like, well, I have too much to lose. You know, I'm not 27, and I've, I've done more than just sell boots, so I have a whole lot to lose. You had nothing to lose. Well, that's true, I didn't. I thought I did. But, you know, maybe as you look at it, you say, well, you, have nothing, you didn't have anything to lose. You know, I'm well into my career. I have all this money. I've got all this. I've, I've got a lot to lose if it goes wrong. Do you really? No, maybe in comparison to me. But in comparison to the one who has the key of David, how much do we, any of us have? All we all have are just our little piggy banks. You know, little kids' piggy bank. That's all we have. Some of us have a few more pennies in it than others. Some of us cracked open our penny, penny bank, and we don't have any pennies. But before the Lord, all of us, we, we don't have a lot. We all are weak. We all have very little. So, what is, you, so you count what you, the achievements you've made as being valuable. You want, do you want to know something? You know what one of the problems is with missions? Is we tend to send people that have no experience. Now, I love that. I was a missionary. I went over there with, with no experience. Got some. But often that's who goes on the mission field. Why isn't there ever people that just, they totally get it. They've lived their life. They know how to, to, to live life, how to organize, how to, to, to do ministry. Why is it always the people that have nothing that end up on the mission field? That's it. I, I, you know, you can think on it. Maybe it's just simply a failure to understand our call and purpose as the church of Jesus Christ. This is the way I look at it. Jesus said, go into all the earth. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And he's not back yet. So that means what? We need to keep going. We need to keep on going. The Lord is going to open some great doors of opportunity for ministry. For you, for your family, if you seek him. He's going to open some great doors of ministry and opportunity for you as a fellowship. And, and here's the great thing. We don't have to dream them up. We don't have to go figure it out. We don't have to have a brainstorming plan. All we need to do is just say, Lord, here we are. Here we are. I present you, I present myself to you as a living sacrifice. Do whatever you want with Calvary Chapel Flavana. Do whatever you want with my family, with my children. Lord, I'm, want, I'm willing to do this. My wife doesn't know this yet, but the other day, yesterday, or Friday, my son came into the office and he says, You know what, Dad? He goes, and he's on staff at the church. He says, he goes, I just have a real heart to go over. Now, moms, where don't you want to hear your sons say that they, they want to go? 
He said, I have a heart to really go over to Iraq and just, just try and, and share the gospel. And, and, and at first I'm thinking, I don't want you to go there. But then I realized, you know, this is exactly how we've raised him. And I'm like, well, let's start praying about it. Let's see what the Lord will do here. But, you know, we can really begin to clamp down on our kids. You can't go there. That's dangerous. Now, Jesus kind of said it would be like that to be a Christian, didn't he? He says, dangerous business to follow him. He was a rebel. He stirred people up. He turned the, uh, the status quo on its head, and people got upset. And so let's be willing to follow the Lord. The, the chapter closes here, and there's promises. He promises in verse 9 to give them vindication for those who had been persecuting them. He says, indeed, I will make them, that come, uh, make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. They were a persecuted church. He says, those that have persecuted you are going to come. They're going to worship me, but they're going to be right at your feet. In other words, it would seem like the church of Philadelphia is right there at the throne room of God. And then those who have persecuted will come in. And they will see those whom Jesus loves, his church. And they will kneel down before Jesus and they will worship him. And they will have this terrible awareness. We persecuted the ones that he loves. He promises vindication. In verses 10 and 11, he promises to keep them from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth. Verse 12, he promises that he's going to stabilize them. They'll be like a pillar in the temple of God. And I love this. Verse 12, and we'll close here. In the middle of verse 12, he says, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. When you get to heaven, the Lord's going to take you aside, and he's going to get a little sharpie, and he's going to write. I don't know what he's going to use to write with, but he's going to write on you. And he's going to put his name. Why do we put our name on things? Well, because it's valuable to us. It's meaningful to us. It speaks of also ownership, doesn't it? If your name is on it, I own this. And the Lord's just going to say, hey, come here. I want to I write on you. And he's going to write his name on you. There'll be that, that incredible identification with the Lord himself and with the city of Jerusalem. I think it also speaks of intimacy. A lot of you ladies used to, when you were younger, you would write the name of a boy on your hand or something or in a notebook that was yours. You maybe try out that last name to see how it was going to sound. Guys, we never did this. We, we knew what name we were going to have. You know, they, they had to figure out, that's going to sound, you know. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of ownership. And we are the Lord's. And these are the promises that he gives to those who follow him. And verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've said a lot of things. There might be different things the Spirit of God is saying to, to different individuals. But I pray. I pray the Lord stirs this church up more than is already stirred up. I pray that you have opportunities that are placed in front of you that will take your breath away, that's going to have to cause you just to fall to your knees and say, are you sure, Lord? And when you hear, hey, we think, we have a strong maybe that this is an open door, don't let that bother you. Because we don't function like the other institutions. We are the institution of the Lord. And he says, my institution will walk by faith not by sight. And so let's pray. Let's make this prayer a point of surrender for us as 
individuals, as families, and then just for the church as well. And and let's see what the Lord will do. It's kind of like Jonathan, you know. Jonathan didn't ask permission from the rest of the army when he went and picked a fight. So let's just go check it out and see what happens. And some of you can offer up prayers like that right now. And you're going to offer yourself up and you're going to include other people in it that don't even know it right now. That's all right. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the good things that you have done here in Fluvanna. The great things you've done over the years to bring this body of believers together, to use them to reach out in, in the many different ways they are in this community and around the world. But I pray, Lord, that you would, you would do a new work. You'd do a new fresh ministry opportunity in this town and in this state and around this world. Lord, the days are dark. You're on the move, and we want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to be that last day's church that's seeing the open doors and walking through them. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for Steve. I pray for the elders of this church. Lord, give them a vision in the the day that they need it, the time that's right for those new works that you're calling them to do. And I pray that they will find that there is a body full of believers that says, do all that is in your heart, we are with you. Now I give you just a moment to pray. I've prayed for the church, but you pray for yourself as an individual, as a family, for the open doors that God is putting in front of you. And as we close with the song, you respond to the Lord. You just submit. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. All you have to do is to say, Lord, here I am, send me. And he'll figure out where to send you. And then you just got to walk through the open door. God bless you and Thank you for letting me share with you.